This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Randa Melcher, and I am very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Megan Brown about her book, The Seventh Member State, Algeria, France and the European Community, published by Harvard University Press in 2022. In the book, Dr. Brown details the surprising story of how Algeria joined and then left the post-World War II economic, a European economic community, and then tells us a lot about what its past inclusion means for extracontinental membership in what became the European Union, how we think about the borders of Europe, um, and how we think about even broader questions like citizenship and rights. Um, so I found this book really quite interesting, both for the specific kind of case that it details and some of the really interesting details that it goes into about diplomacy, um, but also for the wider questions it raises about a number of important topics. So thank you, Dr. Brown, for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm excited to chat with you today. Great. Um, So as a foundation for our discussion, could you please introduce yourself, your academic background and explain how you came to write this book? Sure. So I'm an assistant professor of modern European uh, history at Swarthmore College, which is a small liberal arts college just outside of Philadelphia. And I sort of, I mean, generally, but it would be a whole podcast worth of conversation kind of backed up into this career. But in terms of getting to this topic, I actually think it has a lot to do with my academic background. Um, As an undergraduate, I went to Northwestern University for journalism, and I kind of gradually came to see history as being a gateway for me to understand what I thought would be the current events that I would write about in my career. Um, But I did a study abroad program that was a joint program between Northwestern and Sciences Po studying um, the European Union. And uh, I realize now that the version of the EU's history that we learned was a really close to an official version, very celebratory. And this was also, I was I was in Paris studying abroad, studying the EU at a really optimistic pre-Eurozone crisis time. So the first weekend that we arrived as students, we visited 
uh, the beaches of Normandy. And then we visited Jean Monnet's home. So really literally tying the end of World War II to the foundation of Europe. And then in a later field trip, we went to the European Parliament building um, in Brussels, which has a really killer gift shop. But it was just one of those kind of uh, very clear uh, studying a path between war to peace through European integration. Um, but that was my intro to, to learning about European integration at all, since I think it's fair to say that most American students tend not to learn much about it, um, unless it's a particular interest of theirs. Uh, after graduating uh, with my journalism degree, I actually wound up getting an MA in Paris studies at the University of London Institute in Paris. And while I was uh, living in Paris that year, a friend of mine introduced me to the songs of Enrico Macias, who um, is a is known as a 1960s crooner um, who recently some non-French audiences would have met him through a, a show on Netflix that's about a family that starts a weed business, um, which is not related to my topic at all. But uh, Enrico Macias was actually, uh, he's a, a, a Jewish Algerian musician. And I ended up writing a term paper for my MA about his lyrics and thinking about sort of the poetics of settler colonial exile. Um, and I certainly never thought about those two things together. The, the EU and Enrico Macias don't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, but when I got to the Graduate Center of the City University of New York for my PhD, I really did not come in with a firm topic at all. I just knew that I was really excited about French history. And um, Cliff Rosenberg, who I worked with very closely alongside David Transky, suggested that I consider writing about the Pied Noir, so writing about the settler um, colonists of Algeria or possibly you know, their return to France or so-called return. Many of them had never been to France prior to Algeria's independence, um, but thinking about that as a topic. And so I started to pursue this idea, thinking about the idea that... Um, that maybe French officials learned lessons from other European states about uh, evacuating their nationals from territories that were no longer uh, a part of their uh, of, of their sort of geographic expanse. So, for example, how West Germany dealt with the arrival of Sudetenland Germans after uh, World War II or how the British evacuated and then welcomed their citizens uh, who had left Egypt. Um, and as I was studying this, I also came upon in the archives quite a bit of material on Algeria and somehow, um, you know, I wasn't really clear on it, but policies for the European economic community relating to Algeria and in Algeria. And I thought that this was one project, and this is really an example of uh, prospectus feedback being really, really important because uh, Cliff and David alongside uh, Gary Wilder essentially told me, no, you have two projects. And I wound up deciding that the angle about Algeria's place in the EEC was the one that would be um, more fruitful um, and more exciting to examine. And so in this very winding way, that's how I came to be interested in the EU and then interested in French Algeria and then finally interested in uh, French Algeria and then independent Algeria and its relationship to the European economic community. Thank you for kind of 
helping us tracing that journey for us to almost follow along on. Um, it does, you know, as you speak through each of those experiences, I can see how they kind of add up into the book. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I asked that because I think it does provide us a good basis to start to explore kind of a highlights tour almost of the book. Um, and conveniently, from an interview's point of uh, interviewer's point of view, um, this is your book is written pretty much chronologically. So we will follow a similar sort of trajectory in discussing it, um, starting with kind of where we're at at the beginning, right? So as the EEC is being developed um, in negotiations after World War II, you know, kind of to solve the problem of Europe continually going to war against each other, um, to resolve some economic problems after the war, um, Algeria is part of the conversation, kind of, sort of, sometimes, depending on what the French officials want to do. Um, and you talk a lot about this ambiguity, that this wasn't really accidental. There were a lot of kind of reasons for it. So I was wondering if you could start off by kind of helping us understand why was Algeria's status at this point so ambiguous? And why was that kind of on purpose? Yeah, that's a great question. I think no book editor would be happy with, you know, using a term like kind of sorta <laughs> in the middle of your book. But I think kind of sorta really sums up in some ways the, the relationship, particularly thinking about uh, Algeria vis-a-vis -vis France, vis-a-vis -vis Europe. Um, so, you know, during the Algerian war, the, this refrain, Algérie, c'est la France, you know, Algeria is, is France, um, was very important to French officials who were insisting that um, Algeria was not even, you know, a colony, that it was literally a part of France itself. And this had a historical background because when uh, when Algeria was first, oh, portions of Algeria were first uh occupied and conquered um, by France in 1830. Um, within a few decades, the French actually decided to govern portions of Algeria and specifically the, the northern portions that border the Mediterranean um, and not incidentally where most settlers um, would um, would find their own homes. Uh, they governed them as département, which, you know, roughly speaking, um, is the French equivalent of maybe a U.S. state administratively. It's it certainly is not a one-to-one. -one. Um, but they were saying these aren't. This is not a colony. This is really administered as a part of France. They would also gradually extend um, French citizenship rights to settlers as well as to uh, Algeria's. Jewish population, uh, many of whom were not settlers from Europe, but in fact were also um, part of the indigenous communities of Algeria. Um, so there was this idea that Algeria, you know, was populated by French citizens and that it was a part of France, not a colony. So um, at the same time, the vast majority of people living in Algeria, people that the French state called um, uh, French Muslims, um, they were not afforded citizenship rights on the whole. So there's this incredible ambiguity that it's a part of France populated largely not by French citizens. So we already have that ambiguity before we get to this question um, of European integration. So before we see the foundation of the EEC, which was um, signed into being by the Treaty of Rome in 1957 and then officially launched in 1958. Uh, first, there's the European Coal and Steel Community, and that's a treaty in 1951. Um, and 
when the French were negotiating with their European partners for the ECSC, the coal and steel community, and their partners, they're known as the six together. That's Belgium, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and West Germany. Um, the French had no interest in allowing the other um, members of, of what would be the ECSC uh, be involved in Algeria's business. They were like, this is a domestic affair. You are not going to be part of um, our Algerian concerns. In part, they um, they recognize that their partners would would not be particularly happy about adding to development aid in Algeria, but actually they were much more aware that they themselves did not want um, other European commercial interests to gain favorable access to Algerian natural resources, um, particularly iron, or to the market, um, because Algeria was a really um, critical uh, site for French exports, and uh, France also enjoyed, of course, um, importing Algerian goods at a very favorable rate. Um, and this goes so far as the Algerian Chamber of Commerce, um, which was upholding at the time French and settler interests, strongly objecting to having uh, the ECSC's pricing demands apply to Algeria. And they argued, and here's, I think, this is an interesting example of the ambiguity, they argued that um, Algeria's mining links to Morocco and Tunisia, so its neighbors, would um, were so important that were Algeria to be connected to Europe, it would rupture the harmony in the region. So again, we see the sort of ambiguity that Algeria does not have the same status as Morocco and Tunisia. Um, and yet, if Algeria were treated as the rest of France, something would not be right in this sort of imperial swath of territory. Um, so the ambiguity was always there, claiming Algeria as a part of France, but also backing off if it meant that um, metropolitan France would not sort of enjoy a very particular um, status and very particular benefits vis-a-vis Algeria. But that that did change, as I'm sure we will discuss, um, as the war of independence in Algeria intensified. So this is the perfect next question. Thank you for setting me up so well. Um, Is kind of, that's the sort of situation we're at, the different things that are trying to be balanced. Um, You know, I I thought it was really interesting that obviously one of the exports um, is wine. And no, that's not exporting wine from France to Algeria. It's the other way around, Um, which as you detail later in the book is the reason that might surprise us today is because explicitly that was something that was destroyed later on. Um, which I found really interesting. Personally, I didn't know that. Um, So we've got this tenuous balance, lots of different actors going on, the six and Algeria, etc. And then there is an independence war that breaks out in Algeria to try and become independent and break away from France. How does this change the calculation of French officials about Algeria's status generally and within the context of the EEC? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It didn't change at all at once. Um, even this is is really quite gradual. So the Algerian War of Independence, you know, officially launches in 1954. It was on the heels of France's defeat um, and exit in Indochina. Um, but in the first years of the war, French officials, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't until literally decades after Algerian independence that France recognized the Algerian War of Independence as a war. Prior to that, they called it, you know, the events. Um, but they really viewed it not only not as a war at this time, but as sort of an internal domestic concern. Um, but as the 50s progressed, the war's violence intensified. 
And also, um, as others, notably um, Matthew Connolly, have detailed, uh, Algerian anti-imperial nationalists became quite adept at mobilizing uh, international opinion. And uh, this uh, intensification of the war's violence and also this intensification of uh, Algerians' capacity to gain public sympathy uh, outside of France, but also gradually um, French metropolitan populations began to to also view the war as being a waste of resources and um, and generally not something to be supported. This coincided with the negotiations for the European Economic Community. Um, so at first, French negotiators, and again, this gets back to Algeria's um, ambiguous status. They um, they the French negotiators for the EEC, they folded Algeria in with the um, colonial territories of French uh, Equatorial and French West Africa, um, although this was juridically not an accurate sort of um, combination of administrative um, status. Um, So again, they were sort of able to ignore Algeria's status as France because it seemed useful to be tying Algeria in with um, an associated status that these colonies were going to have with the EEC, which would have meant some favorable trade ties um, and access to some particular sources of development aid funds that had been earmarked for the colonies. But... um, Algerians successfully got the UN General Assembly to agree to discuss the war, and this changed things very dramatically and very, very rapidly. The French immediately shifted gears, and really within a week, um, rather than just attempting to uh, associate Algeria as part and parcel with the colonies, they um, changed tactics and insisted as um, really an ultimatum that Algeria be explicitly named in the EEC treaty, in the Treaty of Rome. Um, and as a result, also France's other overseas departments would would be named, um, although the archival record strongly suggests that this decision was made because of Algerian uh, events, the war, and not as a general sudden interest that, that France had in securing uh, EEC regulations and rights for all of the overseas departments. So that change and that sort of ultimatum, uh, it opened the door for more EEC stipulations, including um, uh, regulations related to agricultural products, uh, social security rights for laborers, development aid, and the movement of labor to potentially apply in Algeria. Um, But after the treaty was signed, officials in Paris were definitely not hurried uh, about seeing that all of these regulations were put into effect in Algeria. And I should note, that's actually really common um, with uh, European integration regulations. There typically was a delay period. It's That's not something that's unique to the case of Algeria. Uh, it's just that in this case, the delay period happened to coincide um, with Algeria's independence in 1962. Um, but the French really, you know, prior to that were, I would argue, much more interested in the semantics of naming Algeria and getting the six to agree that Algeria was France by signing the treaty. So the treaty, in effect, became this way of answering um, of answering the the 
critics of France's presence in Algeria of answering the UN General Assembly and saying, no, look, these European states agree Algeria is France. Therefore, of course, we're including it in integrated Europe. Um, and, And so I would argue that Algeria's inclusion in Europe has everything to do with the escalation of the Algerian war. So, because this is fascinating, right? This very rapid about face. And of course, the idea that I talked about in the introduction that actually, even though we don't think of it now, Algeria was a named member in this treaty of European integration. So if if I could ask you just to sort of clarify a bit, why? What did France think they were going to get from Algeria being suddenly a named seventh member? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll, <laughs> the it, it's first it's really odd to say so when Al- because algeria was still considered a part of france when the eec treaty was signed its status there is really ambiguous it's not a named member as the title of my book would suggest <laughs> it's um it's it's a named region of france um and it's a named region of france where some but not all uh, regulations of the EEC will eventually apply. What France gets, like I was saying, is on the one hand, this sort of supranational accord that the French can hold up and say, look, everybody agrees, everybody being five other European states, that Algeria definitely is France. Otherwise, what would it be doing in Europe in the first place? Um, but there also uh, there are material benefits to having Algeria named um, and that's because the French at this point, they still believe that it would be possible to um, to quell uh, unrest in Algeria with an infusion of development aid for infrastructural projects and more um, that that, you know, this is the root of the problem in Algeria and that if only we can, you know, throw money at it, the war will end and French Algeria will go back to being a, a beautiful jewel, you know, in in France's larger um, expanse. And so there was on the one hand, the sort of, um, weaponizing of the treaty to show, look, we, uh, we know as all Europe knows that Algeria definitely is part of us, France. And on the other hand, thanks to this treaty, we will be able to access funds and these funds will allow us to, uh, calm the situation in Algeria and return things, um, seemingly to normal, AKA to French, Algeria as being the norm. Got it. Thank you for sort of drilling down into those specifics. Um, because it does always seem kind of like, okay, hang on, wait, what? What? What is, why are they doing, like, Algeria is fighting to be free of France, and therefore France doubles down on including them in treaties with other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting yes. to kind of play this out. Um, and similarly, this idea of treaties with other people, um, European aid is a significant part, you already mentioned it, um, that it kind of opens up more things if Algeria is included explicitly in the treaty. Um, But you detail how this was actually a source of tension, not between France and Algeria, but between France and West Germany. Why? Yes. And I think, you know, it's it's something um, that I touch on in the book. So in, in my in the book, the first half or more of the book, there are not many Algerian voices on this topic. And it's because I would argue, you know, Algerians were busy fighting a war to prove that they were not French. So their main concern was not, hey, how do we fit into Europe? Because they were very occupied 
proving diplomatically and through war that they you know, did not belong to France at all. Um, so rather, this question of Algeria was, was this question of how France was sort of relating to its European partners. Um, so, you know, the, the, the tension was great and it was great between West Germany and France and also great between France and Italy. Um, so Italian authorities, um, I'll start with, they were uh, very, very displeased because they believed that the French were pushing for funds that were meant, really earmarked for their own citizens, particularly from the Mezzogiorno, um, that this would instead potentially benefit Algerians instead. Um, The Germans, for their part, uh, were very frustrated. Um, In in one example, uh, the French attempted right after the EEC was founded to divert EEC funds that had been earmarked for France's overseas territories, meaning not the departments, so not Algeria, to Algeria. And West Germany had contributed over $200 million to this fund. Um, And this actually had the potential to pull money away from French West Africa, French Equatorial Africa, and Madagascar, um, which shows just how concerned France was about Algeria, that they were willing to essentially pull money away from their uh, colonial territories in order to to get funds towards Algeria. But the French really brushed off anger um, on the part of Germans who had noted that, you know, during the ratification of the EEC, um, when it was discussed in the Bundestag, these authorities had promised they believed the French and had assured other German officials that the French would not extend these funds to Algeria. And then lo and and behold, that's exactly what the French want to do. Um, But the French were a bit flippant about uh, West Germany's uh, unhappiness. And this isn't really surprising because throughout the process of European integration, the French really counted on West Germany as an ally in large part because um, European integration allowed Franco-German friendship to bloom and it helped West Germany to normalize its place in the post-war order. So generally the French were fairly confident, particularly before the EEC was founded, um, that they could rely on the six going along with their demands because France was so central to European integration. And then specifically, they counted on West Germany as an ally, despite ways that they angered West Germany, um, because they knew that West Germany had a a very serious stake in seeing uh, the success of European integration really almost at any cost. Um, And there's another example that I think is really shows um, the sort of ways that France potentially was going to antagonize West Germany, but then the ways that West Germany really um, worked to make French authorities happy. Um, And this is in a moment that's called the Alert Affair. Um, In 1960, West Germany recalled a career diplomat from his, whose name was Helmut Alert, and I cannot do uh, German pronunciation, but there we have it, uh, from his position as second in command at the EEC commission that oversaw um, overseas funding, FIDOM. And they did so after he had allegedly um, insulted the commission's director, who was um, a French businessman, Robert Lemagnon. And so Bond sent in Alart's place, um, not only did they recall him, but they uh, transferred 
a diplomat who had most recently been West Germany's general counsel in Algiers to replace him. And weeks after this man's arrival, West Germany uh, lifted its opposition to financing Algerian projects through another development fund. Um, And I think that this really shows this combination of uh, removing an official who is highly qualified that the French um, did not like, and then replacing him with somebody who was really poised to know a lot about French interests in Algeria suggests just how much West Germany, despite frustrations, was willing to go along um, with French demands. Interesting. I, I think I found that particularly that added a lot of like texture almost to these sort of debates. Um, to see very much that, again, it wasn't just between Algeria and France. There were a bunch of other actors that had quite complicated goals and kind of couldn't be removed. It was it made it so clear that this whole um, untanglement that you're looking at or entanglement is that it wasn't domestic, it wasn't foreign, that those sorts of divisions didn't make any sense. Um, and spoiler alert, Algeria then becomes independent. And yet it still is quite tangled um, and it's still not super clear what Algeria's position is related to the EEC. Um, So can you sort of tell us a little bit about what initially happens with Algeria's involvement after they become independent? Um, But as you detail in the book, there's still stuff going on between Algeria and France in terms of relations and rules and who has what. Um, And then obviously Algeria is now named in the treaty of the EEC, but as a part of France, but it is no longer a part of France. So how does that work in the initial post-independence years? Yes. I mean, that's a big question. You know, I teach a a course um, uh, on France and Algeria and the periodization is 1830 to present. And toward the end of the semester, you know, I show photos of Algerian officials um, posing with French officials during diplomatic meetings, you know, in the last few decades. And my students are typically really astounded that Algerians will deign to share a room with the French. But many historians have shown in in a number of ways that, you know, decolonization is, is often not a firm break. And that's very much the case in this story. So, You know, in Algeria's uh, case, after independence, France remained a key export market, for one. Um, And then, and you've alluded to this already, although Algerian officials railed against the colonial legacy of the wine industry um, as an agricultural product that was forced upon the Algerian people by the French, it was really a very lucrative one and one that they couldn't simply abandon. Um, And there's really great recent books by Joseph Bowling and uh, Owen White that, um, that talk about this relationship in in some detail. Um, So the Algerian economy, you know, was decimated by the war, physical destruction brought by the conflict. Um, You know, uh, there is also um, a really large amount of um, Algerian laborers moved to France even during and after the war um, to find work. So the, the economy is really struggling. And so for Um, the independent Algerian state maintaining trade with France and also expanding it with the six appears to be a way of bolstering the Algerian economy and and helping the state to find some solid footing. Um, And so initially, Algeria really has a stake in seeing that its relationship with both France and the EEC 
continues economically. Um, and then, yes, eventually Algerian policy leads to the literal uprooting of vineyards um, and the EEC eventually, with France and Italy leading the charge, actively work to kill Algeria's wine industry. Um, but this happens really only gradually, and it's as Algeria begins to turn more towards industry and also to be um, looking towards uh, lucrative oil extraction. Um, but the slow untangling, it's an important signal that independent Algeria saw use in maintaining its connection to the EEC and also vice versa. Um, and the French, for example, did not immediately uh, understand or come to terms with the reality that almost none of the settler population would return to Algeria. So, you know, they envisioned a future of an independent Algeria that still included a sizable um, population of French citizens um, with French-owned businesses that would have required ties to continue really as closely as ever. Um, you know, these were linked economies. And so, you know, along with the reality that Algeria was literally named in the EEC treaty, um, this meant that for well over a decade after Algeria's independence, its relationship to integrated Europe was left Im ambiguous. And so this gets back to this question of was Algeria the seventh member state of the EEC, as my book title might hint. And there's a French official who actually says, and this is a quote, that it's obviously absurd to continue to consider that Algeria could be the seventh member state. But that doesn't mean that EEC officials have any firm idea of to explain exactly what the relationship between Algeria and Europe is. They, they just can't provide an answer. And it leads to sniping and infighting between the six. Um, you know, and so given these economic ties, and in particular, France's reluctance to nail down its precise new relationship with Algeria, the question of Algeria's status dragged on and on literally for years. Well, and... So it had some obvious implications for relations with France and obviously with the EEC and then within the EEC. But you also talk about how it um, Algerian independence, um, but also Algeria's inclusion in the Treaty of Rome, impacted other French colonial territories, which did not become independent, but now could kind of see that there were different ways that they could be included in France's policies um, or not, um, and sort of the confusion kind of was of interest as well to other uh, actors who were, I guess, domestic, but not mainland France. So can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first, there's been a lot of really excellent um, scholarship on um, the relationship between the EEC and um, not just France, but um a, a broader swath of um, of newly independent states uh, in Africa, and that's the the signatories of the 1963 Yuande Convention, which I talk about a, a very small amount in my book. But you know, one thing that I think is important to note is that the sort of run up to um, the negotiations for the Yuande Convention, which is linking European-African relations very strongly in the post-1960 independence period of so many of those African colonies. That's really happening at the same time as European officials are debating issues related to Algerian European affairs. And so I'd, I think it's fair to say that these discussions, um, you know, would have informed one another. Um, but in terms of thinking about how Algeria's ambiguity um, tied to sort of the remaining uh, French overseas uh, departments. I think that is an important question. It's one that I touch on and, and also one that I, I think would be really interesting for a scholar to devote 
a lot more attention to than I do. You know, Algeria was not the only overseas department of France. And um, so although, you know, uh, I see in the archival record that its EC officials are really bristling that uh, the European Development Fund could potentially aid Algeria. Actually, the first project approved um, from that fund to go to an overseas department was actually a clean water project in Réunion, so a different French overseas department. Um, and it, the naming of Algeria really stirred up confusion and contestation. So one example, um, also involving West Germany, um, where the French are really trying West Germany's patience, um, it sees West German uh, master auto mechanics in Réunion uh, whose visa renewals were refused by local officials. And that was on the grounds that these mechanics by, by then should have had the time to train local men to replace them. And so West German officials appealed on these men's behalf, you know, because here we have this idea of free movement of European um, labor, and they are in effect mechanics, German mechanics working in a part of France. But Paris ultimately supports Réunion's decision um, they both cite the um, the unemployment uh, in Réunion and how it's important to support then the local economy and local laborers. Um, but they also note that the EEC's free movement of labor did not apply in the overseas departments. And it's true that this is one of those things that just is, is not hashed out. Essentially, that is, is left to be figured out when Algeria is named in the EEC treaty to begin with. So these men and, and their wives uh, effectively... Um, were expelled from Réunion. They lost the right to live in overseas France, which simply would not have been the case had these men been working in Paris or Marseille. Um, so Algeria's inclusion, it it invited and then left open-ended these questions of labor migration and rights. And um, this example of the German mechanics in Réunion shows how uh, a European partner would see an opening of a geographically expansive Europe, but also how the French could continue to um, try to keep their overseas territories as a supposedly domestic concern outside of the realm of Europe. So it invited, as you said, ambiguity and ambiguity that the French could to a degree um, use to their advantage where, you know, European membership could allow funds to flow towards overseas departments, um, but without then allowing a sort of, uh, normal is the wrong word, but allowing a sort of expected flow of people, say, between overseas France and um, continental European locations. That, yeah, I think that was a really good example um, that kind of explains exactly how it's like, wait a second, but if this, therefore that, hang on, how is that not working? Um so we've this idea of ambiguity to some degree ends kind of when Algeria then definitively leaves the EEC. Um, that kind of in a way provides like a sort of definitive break. And we'll get into, I think, in a few questions uh, why I'm being so sort of skeptical about that. Um, but maybe we can start off by if you could explain for us kind of when, how and why does Algeria actually fully leave the EEC? 
Yes. So it happens in 1976. So to just repeat some dates, because I think when I tell my students that I'm not like a dates names historian, but I think that the dates in this case are really important, right? Uh, the Treaty of Rome is signed in 1957, goes into effect in 1958. Algeria gains its, in, its independence in 1962. And then Algeria definitively is excised from the EEC in 1976. So it's it's incredible. It's 14 years after Algeria's independence and almost 20 years after the signing of the Treaty of Rome. You know, And I think if you tell the average person, Algeria was in integrated Europe for nearly two decades. And it sounds really shocking. Um, but that is how this history played out. Um, so the leaving process, it's really slow. Um, from early 1963, Algerian negotiators had been present in Brussels for intermittent discussions about what Algeria's status within or in relation to the EEC was or could be. Um, you know, and given the economic concerns that we've already talked about and the delicate nature of Cold War politics and more, the EEC, um, their officials had sort of continuously kicked the can down the road and opted to maintain what was called the status quo, meaning in essence that independent Algeria would continue to um, have those same, you know, agricultural regulations and more apply to it even after independence. And I should note that some members of the six were more keen to do this than others. The the Dutch and really increasingly the Benelux states together were very skeptical of this. West Germany um, found Algeria to be a, a more appealing trade partner. Uh, Italy was very unhappy about um, competition for agricultural products and also, you know, uh, labor sources, um, but in other ways did find an appeal to the connection. So it's, it's, it shows that the EEC, although it has to act as a body, does, of course, have national interests at play in a very big way. Um, and then, of course, the French uh, themselves are still figuring out what they want out of an Algerian relationship after independence. Um, so throughout the late well, really mid to late 1960s and into the early 1970s, both sides, meaning Algeria and the EEC, are accusing each other of being to blame for these inconclusive, um, this inconclusive state of affairs and this maintenance of this status quo. Um, but by the time a new set of talks began in earnest in 1974, the EEC um, was by then expanded to nine member states, and Algeria had really drawn much closer ties to um, non-aligned states, to Arab states, and by then, you know, the oil shock had given Algerian leaders a renewed confidence in, in the strength of finding partnership um, and support outside of Europe. Um, and so the, the types of economic and political ties that in their own ways, both Algerian and French officials had been reticent of severing were no longer appealing or viable as they had been in prior years. And so in 1976, Algeria signs this cooperation agreement with the EEC and they do so. It's essentially exactly the same agreement that the EEC signs um, with Morocco and with Tunisia. So it is not a, some sort of treaty that shows a special relationship between Europe and Algeria. Um, and this new document just does not mention the reality that the Treaty of Rome had ever named Algeria or that the status quo had dragged on, you know, for well over a decade by that point. Um, so in this sense, with this new treaty, Algeria was just literally written out of the EEC um, by having that history completely ignored. Um, and I think in a, in a broader way, you know, Algeria's years in the EEC are 
were broadly written out of history because, in a sense, they didn't fit any state's desired narrative of the period. Um, for Algerian authorities, they they literally warred to have the world recognize their independence. Um, so being tied to Europe for years after independence hardly aligned with a narrative of victory over French involvement in Algerian affairs. And for Europeans, you know, recognizing that colonial policies potentially opened the door for European rights to extend to people um, who they deemed undeserving of such rights was, and I would argue today, remains extremely uncomfortable. You know, what would it mean if people from formerly colonized territories could claim European rights, particularly if we think about the context of the so-called migrant crisis today. So for all these reasons, Algeria's exit um, was was slow um, and I would argue has really um, been largely forgotten. I think that's really interesting, the kind of different reasons that all coalesce to the same thing is a lot of different people would rather just not have this have been a thing. Um, but for very different reasons. And yet, as I alluded to in my earlier question, and we'll now get properly into, um, even though Algeria does officially leave the EEC, um, there continue to be these sort of entanglements, um, kind of similar to the example you've already given about the German mechanics, um, and particularly around the European Court of Justice and the implementation, or not, of kind of these expected rules and regulations, especially around sort of labor, compensation for labor, movement of labor. So can you tell us a bit about kind of how Algeria's ended up in the ECJ because it was part of the EEC um, and what that kind of has led, how that's impacted kind of the understandings about what European rights actually are and how they get applied? Yeah, sure. So there there are three cases that came before the ECJ in the 1970s, and collectively, um, they're known really in the case law as the Algerian cases. So um, one involved a West German uh, man and the other two involved Belgian men, all of whom had spent a portion of their careers working in French Algeria, and then all of whom had had their pension funds for those years um, refused by a, a European social security agency. So um a French social security agency or a West German one, essentially that the authorities were saying, well, you you weren't working in Europe in those years. So why would we owe you your European um, pension fund for those years? And just to be clear, that would mean that, you know, in a, in a non-Algerian example, if an Italian man had worked in, in Paris for part of his career, and then he had worked in, um, in Amsterdam for part of his career, when he retired, he would collect a full pension from, the Italian state under um, the, or, you know, he would, he would collect a full pension under European law, thanks to his movement between those places, that that all of that would count towards his pension. It wouldn't be a break in his, um, in his retirement benefits. But here was this argument, you weren't working in Europe, so why should we give you money for those years? Um, and in in all three cases, the ECJ found in favor of these men, arguing that their work in Algeria had been a legitimate part of their European careers. And the court really took pains to emphasize that Europe had an obligation to recognize that EEC rights in Algeria were a legal reality, um, which, you know, my, my book is... It is a a history of diplomacy and bureaucracy, and this is one of those really interesting moments where there's actually kind of the 
the payoff of how these um how Francis tactics in the 1950s had a really lingering human impact. Um, and actually even um, really into the uh, 21st century, uh, the Algerian cases have been cited in the ECJ as a, a way of arguing for the rights of um, European laborers when they work outside of European territory. Um, but the ECJ sort of sympathy for humans definitely did not extend to companies. Um, there was an earlier case of the ECJ rejecting the argument of a West German firm that had argued that brand it had imported from Algeria in 1963. Um, so that's a year after Algerian independence was of EEC origin. <laughs> so unlike the men's cases, um, uh, although it was during this sort of status quo period, the ECJ rejected outright the idea that Algerian brand in 1963 was um of the EEC. And um, I'll note, you know, they didn't have the sort of um, paperwork to prove that it was EEC uh, brand. And that's because Algerian officials, not surprisingly, refused to attest in independent Algeria in 1963 that this was coming from the EEC. Um, so, you know, there's just, it's so interesting too, that at the same time that some Algerian officials are working to get the status quo um uh, maintained. Others are, of course, saying, why on earth would we allow you to call this product European? It is Algerian. Um, there's one case that I did find of an Algerian man um, who the court found in favor of. Um, there was an Algerian man. He um, had worked in continental France for part of his career, and then he moved during the Algerian War to work in um, West Germany, where he remained through to his retirement. And um, he was working in West Germany and essentially de facto became an Algerian citizen while living there at that point of Algerian independence. Um, and the, uh, the German Social Security Administration did not want to grant him a German pension specifically for um, the years he was working um, in France, arguing that, you know, he wasn't a European national, he wasn't a German national. And the ECJ said that indeed he was eligible for that, um, in effect, because he had been a French national when he had worked in France, given Algeria's prior status. Um, but, and this is sort of a, a, one of the ways that I start to conclude my book, this individual Algerian man had success, but his case um, before the ECJ coincided with labor recruitment freezes in the mid-1970s uh, after, um, you know, the end of what is sometimes called the 30 Glorious Years, the Tron Glorieuse. Um, so while uh, one after effect of Algeria's inclusion in the EEC was that European rights could be maintained for some individuals despite Algeria's independence. It's also clear that European states had absolutely no desire to open unlimited access or even potentially much access at all to Algerians um, and others who are now kind of definitively um, cast as foreign populations. Um, so once it was not economically in Europe's own interest to potentially include these populations. That's another way that there's kind of an erasure of these sometimes very, very old, long connections between uh, former colonies um, or the empire and the metropole. Thank you for explaining that, both the kind of specific cases and the sort of big picture implications. Um, I think it really does show that 
uh, it's not that simple. Uh, Algeria leaving the EEC and getting written out of history doesn't just automatically change all of that. Um, And I kind of want to sort of pick up on this idea of the bigger implications as we get towards the end of the time period you cover and therefore the end of the book. Um, How do you think the arguments of your book contribute to maybe a different or broader understanding of decolonization? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few ways. I think um, one is building on the work of, of many other historians is to just be thinking about the long process of decolonization and to, you know, be arguing that a date of independence is not the firm break or the firm pivot, but is one moment in a longer history of untangling that necessarily has to account for years after independence as well. Um I also want readers to take away from my book the significance of international institutions to decolonization. So, you know, while Algeria wrested its independence from France, this history does have this international component um, that complicates the story and allows us to see how supranational and bilateral economic and political exigency impacted decolonization and its aftermath. So, you know, thinking about ways that Europeans envisioned potentially sharing imperial resources, sharing imperial riches, and also supported each other in these missions um, of of maintaining empire well after um, we could argue the writing on the wall um, suggested that that was not the way of the future. Um, And then finally, and this is a, a contribution to Uh, histories of decolonization, but also of European integration, Um, I really want readers to see uh, a challenge to the trope that France pivoted from empire to Europe, um, as if there's a choice between the two, as if France had to say, either we are an imperial power or we are a European power. In, In reality, France saw integrated Europe as an opportunity to maintain the empire to be that much more of an imperial power. Um, so, you know, 1957, signing the Treaty of Rome, or 1962, Algeria's independence, they don't signal the end of France's eye towards holding onto um, overseas holdings, past and present. It really took French officials much longer to see Europe as a choice that was instead of Europe. Um, and even today, you know, it's clear that France remains deeply involved with many of its former colonies, to say nothing of its remaining overseas departments. Um And indeed, if we look at a map of Europe, there are um, many places that are Europe, are, you know, where the EU flag can fly, um, that are nowhere near continental Europe, um, that are not in the Schengen zone, um, and yet are really part of this legacy of the reality that it's not an either or, it's really a both in the minds of the French and of their European partners. Thank you for sort of um, explicitly detailing that. It does obviously come up in the book. And I think it's a really interesting contribution to a number of different fields that maybe I think you're clearly arguing need to be more in conversation with each other than they might currently be. Um, And so I do always ask this as my penultimate question, but I'm particularly interested to ask you about it because you literally had a sentence in your book that I have to quote because it's exactly what the intent is of my question. Uh, quote, from memos so thick they require specialty staples to lists of recipients that extend for multiple pages to brief telegrams in all capital letters. So clearly you had fun in the archives. 
Um, I admit I'm a little bit jealous. Archives are great. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us about something that you came across in the research or writing of the project um, that you might want to share with us, a little behind-the-scenes insight. Definitely. Well, first, I, I will say, thinking of the staples, I absolutely once scraped my finger on on a rusty staple from the 1950s and spent the next two days being sure that, you know, I would lose my hand. Um, but luckily, you know, I was pretty much on the Mediterranean, so it would have been a beautiful location to have a a terrible health crisis, um, but I was okay. Um, but one thing that I was really struck by, you know, my I haven't been back to France since 2019, so it certainly is feeling rusty right now. But generally, I I think I speak and read French quite well, uh, if I do say so myself. Um, and typically, when I'm reading, even if I don't know everything, context clues allow me to to read certainly without a, a dictionary. Um, and I stumbled upon a vocabulary word that turned out to be the same in French and in English. So it was just a word I didn't know at all. And I do talk about this in the book. Um, the word is preterition. Um, I had absolutely never heard that word before in any context, but um, if anybody's listening who studies rhetoric or who maybe did debate club, uh, they might know this word. So it has a few meanings, but in the context that I discovered it, um, it's a rhetorical device of omission or feigning omission. So in this case, there was a French official um, who suggested that the EEC could circumvent the pitfalls of how to label Algeria's relationship to the EEC through preterition, meaning just not mentioning it at all, right? If we don't talk about Algeria, then we never have to talk about uh, what exactly is going on. And, you know, a lot of my book is about ambiguity and sort of shrugs, you know, and I think that that learning that vocab word was really the ultimate of just, you know, of showing that the ambiguity was, um, it was, it was deliberate. It, it was a, a tactic. Um, and I was even more struck by this word um, in a very early um, book stage workshopping of the chapter where I discuss this um, this suggestion for preterition um, that was at uh, Columbia University. Emmanuel Sada suggested that this official might have come across this idea through um, lycée exposé, which is um, uh, the French have a, a very grand tradition of um, public speaking exercises, both at the high school level and then also at the university level. And I realized you know, for a year after I graduated um, from college, I uh, taught as an English assistant in a French high school um, just outside of Bordeaux. And then in the year that I was wrapping up my dissertation, I was a teaching fellow at Sciences Po and Reims. So I have definitely um, experienced my fair share of, of sitting through student expose. And I, I really think, you know, she's right. And that's such an interesting and strange way to think about um, elites' educations. You know, there's really great work on on um, elites' training in colonial administrative universities and how that shaped their ideas and the way they operated. But to think potentially that this um, official, you know, could have come across this idea when he was, you know, 15 or 16 and has been trying to use it to, to determine how all of France and all of, of integrated Europe will relate to Algeria. I just think it's, it's really fascinating. Um, and wow. it's always fun to learn a new word. That's great. Thank you. That's uh, in a lot of ways, the ideal answer to my traditional question. So thank you very much for that. Um, and then for my 
traditional final question. Um, now that this book is done, it has pretty much just come out, but I'm going to ask you anyway, um, what are you working on now? Yeah, I, I actually have two projects. Um, so um, I, I finished writing this book um, as the pandemic was um, first raging, really. I, I, and um, so in some ways, uh, I, I learned a lot about pivoting research um, based on what you can access. I don't think I would have come across the ECJ cases had I not been um, obsessively working with internet sources, for example, to kind of try to round out um, the manuscript. Um, so there's one project that I had come across when I was in the Colonial Archives in X um, that I've done a lot of um, sort of traditional archival research for. And I've, I've also recently published an article on it. And it's about a car race that ran from Algiers to Cape Town from 1951 to 1961 um, that was run by a, a colonial lobbying group based in France that hoped to introduce all Europeans or at least um, rich auto enthusiasts to the wonders of a sort of shared African expanse. So it was a, a pan-European propaganda project that literally drove through Africa. Um, and I don't really know where I'll, I'll take it because I haven't been in archives for it in so long, but that's kind of connections between empire and tourism is, is one um, topic that I'm really excited about. The other project that I'm really eager to get into archives for, because so far I've only been able to do digital um, newspaper research really about it. And I know that there are, are physical archives um, in Paris um, is about a, a Jeffrey and Epstein, excuse me, a Jeffrey Epstein-esque scandal um, called Les Belles Roses that came to light in France in 1959 um, and took down um, some really high-ranking and um, and important figures in Paris, um, politicians, um, sort of uh, cultural figures, um, and more. The the most high ranking being André Le Troquer, um, who until recently had been, um, before um, his sort of downfall in '59, had been the president of the National Assembly. Um, he, you know, he uh, had lost the use of an arm in World War One. He literally walked next to Charles de Gaulle um, in. Uh, August of 1944 during the, the uh, sort of walk down uh, uh, the Champs-Élysées um, to celebrate France's um, liberation after World War II. Um, and he um, really came to great infamy due to this um, case that involved um, adolescent and underage girls. Um, and um, you know, so it's very disturbing details, um, but it's also just a really fascinating and, from what I can tell, really um, under-examined um, episode in, in French history. So as I said, I, I can't complete this project until I go to Paris to hopefully and, and first apply for a derogation, so apply for the right to look at these archives, which are, of course, going to be quite sensitive um, in nature. Um, but I think that this project could be both uh, an important contribution to thinking about sort of sexual mores, um, including consent in France prior to 1968, which for um, historians of gender and sexuality, um, uh, you know, 68 is seen as an important moment in thinking about consent um, in, in France. And I think this is a sort of um, notable moment prior to that to think about French attitudes towards um 
age, sex, consent, um, and war. And then I also think, you know, and maybe a little bit more clearly related to my, um, my book, which straddles the fourth and the fifth Republic, I think it's an interesting way to, um, examine the transitions and also political intrigue um, at at the launch of the Fifth Republic, expanding it beyond just looking at um, the Algerian war to be thinking of other ways that um, this sort of political um, moment of transition was occurring. So those are the two projects. And um, yeah, I don't know exactly where they will take me, but I'm, I'm they really sound excited. Interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully yeah. <laughs> you'll get to go off to the archives soon. Um, but while you are immersed in, I'm sure, uh, so many boxes of so many papers, uh, listeners can read your current book, which as a reminder is titled The Seventh Member State, Algeria, France, and the European Community, published by Harvard University Press in 2022. Dr. Megan Brown, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed talking to you.